0: Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Paul Diggle, Chief Economist at Aberdeen. And I'm Luke Bartholomew, Senior Economist at Aberdeen. And this week our focus is on politics. So, Of course, it will not have escaped your attention that 2024 is an enormous electoral and political year, bookended by Taiwan just gone and the US in November but also with the likes of the UK, the EU, India, and many others heading to the polls. So we're going to talk on this episode about some of the crucial economic issues at stake in these elections and why they matter to investors. Now, overarching all these elections are, I think, unifying themes of political polarisation, geopolitical uncertainty, the changing nature of globalisation, some have called 2024 an acid test for democracy. So we're delighted to be joined by Lizzie Galbraith, political economist here at Aberdeen to discuss all this. Welcome, Lizzie.
1: Thanks for having me back again, Paul.
0: So let's start, Lizzie, with Taiwan. Can you give us a very quick summary of the results to bring our listeners up to speed?
1: Yep, so uh, the pro independence Democratic Progressive Party candidate uh, William Lye, won the presidential election. Um, it's an unprecedented third term for the party. However, uh, they lost their majority in the legislative, so the DPP have failed to, to win an outright majority there. And that's going to temper some of the policy making going forward. So, what we've seen is really sort of broad continuity from the previous previous election, to to now no real huge changes in terms of the political landscape in Taiwan.
0: So a lot was at stake in these elections, and not all of it is about the status of Taiwan vis-a-vis China. It's, I think, important not to reduce Taiwanese politics down to that one single issue. I mean, that said, for international investors, Um, We are principally interested in Taiwanese politics because of its implications for Taiwan-China-U.S. relations. In that regard then, Lizzie, has this election increased cross-straight risk?
1: So tensions are probably going to remain elevated in the short term, just because William Lai was probably uh, Beijing's least favourite option when it came to the candidates available. But really, given that we've just seen uh, one DPP president sort of move on to another DPP president, we've not seen any huge change in the relationship between Taiwan and China as a result of this election. Really, the bigger risk factor here is actually going to be the the US election, which is probably going to be the main driver of potential risk in in the region over the next 12 to 18 months. The US election, depending on what happens there, has the potential to introduce quite a lot of policy uncertainty, potentially inconsistency in how the US approaches um, its strategic ambiguity policy as well. And and that's really the thing that we think could be the, the biggest risk factor going forward in, in this um, situation.
2: So just building on what Paul was saying there about the importance of US, Chinese and Taiwanese relations in terms of the global economy, of course, the real importance is of, of Taiwan as a chip producer within the global economy. It's a topic that we talked about back with chris miller last year in his book chip wars but lizzie you were saying there that perhaps the most important thing that's affected cross strait dynamics or may do is the u.s election we had last week uh, as we speak the iowa caucuses which trump won very handily ron DeSantis has left the contest and as we speak today it's the new hampshire primaries which trump looks set to win uh, as well, so to ask the question bluntly, I mean, is there any chance now that Trump won't be the Republican nominee?
1: Um, I think, absent all of the polls being extremely wrong, no. Uh, uh, it looks like he's really on a glide path now to to the nomination. Uh, he's he's leading in all of the the polling in all of the Republican primaries. It's unlikely we're going to get much further. I think, unless uh, Nikki Haley has a, a very surprising turnaround um and yes i think it it we are uh, moving to a situation where trump is going to be the de facto nominee um pretty pretty shortly we've also seen a majority of congressional republicans already endorse him so it really does feel like the republican party is now is now moving pretty firmly behind trump as well um and he certainly retains a very very strong level of support across the republican primary base
2: so the general election is looking therefore to be a repeat of the Trump Biden contest of last time. What are the polls currently saying about how that contest will go?
1: So at the moment, Trump holds a narrow lead over Biden in head-to-head polling at a national level and has done since November. Uh, Voters are particularly negative on uh, perceptions of the economy under Biden, and they have quite a few concerns about Biden's age as well. Crucially, Trump is also polling very strongly against Biden in the six key swing states of Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Now Biden won all six of those in 2020, by extremely narrow margins and those are the states to look for as trump's path to victory uh, relies on flipping at least four of those states back to the republicans in the election this year
2: now it's interesting you say lizzie that there is this perception um the the economy is a weakness for biden and it's certainly true that consumer sentiment and other confidence indicators have been extremely weak over the last couple of years indeed have been running much weaker than actual the real economy has been given you know how strong growth has been how low unemployment is um some people have even called that the so-called vibe session this idea that it's not so much that the economy itself that's in recession it's just that the vibes are extremely poor i mean it's also been quite frustrating for us as forecasts because uh, typically consumer sentiment is seen as this forward-looking indicator it tells you something about where the economy is going to go and that the weakness of it has sort of implied that the economy is going to deteriorate and that hasn't happened yet in fact most Recently, we've seen that sentiment has picked up a little bit and is maybe starting to catch upwards with the strength of the economy. So perhaps there is the possibility that the economy, having been a source of great weakness to the Biden campaign, could, as we get closer to the election, become something of a source of strength. Of course, that does depend on the economy not falling into an actual recession rather than a vibe session this year. But let's assume it is Trump. Who, who does win in November and I'm sure this is a topic we will revisit and there's lots to say but broadly speaking what would uh, a second Trump term mean?
1: So based on what he said so far, a, a second term Trump presidency would mean quite a big divergence from the policies that the Biden administration's um, been focusing on over the last four years. So particularly in areas like trade, Trump is proposing policies like a universal baseline tariff. Um, he's proposed this to be around 10% on the majority of goods imported to the US. Um, He's also proposed additional tariffs on countries that have unfair trading practices that negatively impact the US. So potentially some really uh, volatile trade policies um, under Trump. Geopolitically, we'd also likely see a more hawkish approach to China. Um, not to say that actually the the Biden administration has overseen a necessarily a huge improvements in U.S. Chinese relations, but we'd certainly go back and, and see uh, probably a more volatile relationship with with China, and there may be a watering down of strategic ambiguity under a future Trump presidency as well that would affect um, cross-strait relations, as we mentioned. Um, at the start as well. Trump's also more likely to pursue a a potentially isolationist policy um, in some areas. You may see the US um, be less inclined to intervene overseas, but We saw in his first term that sometimes they actually uh, became more inclined to take military action as well. So there's potentially less reliability in U.S. geopolitical strategy. Sometimes we may see them um, seek to end involvement, as Trump has pledged to do in Ukraine. In other situations, you may see the U.S. actually go beyond what has um, been the case under President Biden. On the fiscal side, we know Trump is very interested in not just extending the tax cuts that he introduced in 2017, but also potentially uh, going further than he did during his, his first term. And that's going to be compounded and complicated by the increasingly limited fiscal space. But we know that Trump's instincts are going to be um, fairly high spent. He's not a particularly um, hawkish Republican when it comes to uh, lowering US debt. It's not something that he's particularly interested in. So we're we're probably looking at more high spend instincts um, from from Trump um, in a second term. We're also likely to see Trump actually take quite a radical approach to um, the structure and the function of governments as well. Um, So potentially looking at um, taking regulatory agencies back under the direct control of the presidency, maybe having the FTC pursue antitrust policy less aggressively, and potentially politicizing a lot of areas of the civil service as well. And that could lead, again, to quite a lot of policy uncertainty in the event of a second term presidency.
0: So all sorts of interesting potential uh, implications of a a second Trump term, no doubt something we'll, we'll come back to on the podcast. But of course, the outcome of the election is you know, un- unpredictable. Polling is close, even if Trump has a lead at the moment. Um, somewhere, I suppose, Lizzie, where the next election is looking somewhat more predictable is here in the UK, um, both in terms of its electoral outcome, which obviously has a, at the moment a strong lead in the polls for the Labour Party, but also... I think it's, it's policy and economic implications. Perhaps the unpredictable bit is the exact timing of a UK general election. You know, H1, H2 this year could still even be at very early next year. What's the latest in terms of when an election is likely to be held, considerations around that, but also what current polling is saying about the size of any potential Labour majority?
1: So the absolute last date that a general election could be called is the seventeenth of December this year, which would mean the election would be held on the twenty eighth of January twenty twenty five. That's extremely unlikely, not least because then the bulk of the campaigning would be happening over Christmas, and that's not something that the public or MPs particularly wants. So the two more realistic periods that are under consideration at the moment are May. That would likely coincide with the local election which are held on the 2nd of May, or mid-November, after the US election has been held. November is more likely, uh, given that the current polling deficits, uh, the Conservatives remain um, 20 points or so behind in the polls at the moment, and it's very unlikely that any meaningful change in the polls would would be made in the events of the government going for a May election. So November would give... The Conservatives more time to to make some headway in that polling deficit. Although it's it's fairly unlikely that that we'd see them wait right till the end of, of this session before they call that election.
0: Yeah, no one wants to be uh, to be campaigned over on over Christmas.
1: Um, but what what would a a Labour government
0: mean then for for the economy for investors?
1: So I think the big thing that we'd see is a shift towards a more interventionist industrial policy. So we're likely to see a Labour government change the fiscal rules that would allow more borrowing to fund infrastructure investments. We know that Labour wants to create an £8 billion national wealth fund. And the target that they've set for that is that for every pound that is spent through that... On infrastructure projects, they want to attract £3 of private capital to co-invest alongside it. So the idea that Labour is sort of putting forward is that you'd see a big increase in the the amount that the state is spending on green infrastructure projects in particular but they also want to see the private sector invest alongside the the government's to make sure that investment goes as far as possible and to try and get around the very limited fiscal space that any labor government would would have to deal with Labour's also looking at a number of other initiatives as well, so potentially taking the mansion house pension reforms that the government is pursuing at the moment even further to enable pension funds to invest in some of these uh, projects as well, as well as prioritising planning reform to speed up planning permissions for infrastructure projects and for housing as well. Where we're not seeing um, maybe much much change, potentially surprisingly, for, for a Labour uh, government is that they've not actually pledged to spend much additional money on public services in the first half of a potential government so all of the 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 fiscal room is effectively being targeted towards these these infrastructure plans with the hope that that can generate economic growth and that can then be used to to fund um, additional public sector support but we're seeing them take a a different approach to to previous um, labour leadership plans and it's looking like um, it's heading more in a sort of Bidenomics direction than necessarily a Blair style or a Corbyn style uh, policy platform.
2: So another place where the election outcome is looking pretty predictable is in India. Now we discussed India on a recent podcast it looks very likely that Modi will win a third term there but what's at state do you think Lizzie in India's elections this year?
1: So as you said, I mean, it's it's extremely likely that, that Modi's going to win a third term. His approval rating is currently 76%. And that level of endorsement is going to lead him to pursue largely the same economic and social policy trajectory in a third term. One thing that we know he's going to be focusing on is this made in India strategy, his sort of key industrial policy that aims to boost domestic manufacturing. Um, So we're seeing um, subsidies, tax cuts um, and investment into improving, you know, logistical infrastructure to to enable all this to happen. So I think that's going to be a big focus of a third uh, Modi term. But there are some risks around uh, this as well, particularly Modi's tendency to lean into more protectionist uh, policies as well. And we have seen Modi struggle, despite his popularity, to get through some tougher reform agendas like Labour reform. uh, That's proved quite hard for him to actually complete in his second term. May also prove tricky in his third term, depending on the size of the parliamentary majority that um, he ends up with after this election.
0: And then, Lizzie, the final location where we want to talk about elections then is, is in the EU. There are European Parliament elections in June. Now, the standard worry I think that many investors have when it comes to European elections is of a far right populist takeover. And those worries have been given some extra impetus recently by the success of Goethe Wilders in the Netherlands, the AFD's polling in Germany, the Penn support in France. But I wonder if that is all perhaps a little bit of a red herring, or at least there are clear counter examples to that shift um, in things like the far right being defeated electorally in Poland um, with Donald Tusk recently, or parts of the the far right being hemmed in by European institutions being kind of um, forced to be more conventional by institutions and strategic realities. Maloney, Italy would be an example there. So what are your expectations heading into this European election? Should we fear a big far right surge in Europe?
1: So it is true that polling suggests that the the right uh, leaning blocks in the European Parliament will make gains in in this election. Um, however, that doesn't necessarily mean that the the sort of the meaningful power base in the in Parliament, particularly the Commission, will change. So the centre right EPP and the centre left S and D blocks are still likely to be the two largest blocks in parliament and the EPP will maintain its current kingmaker sort of position as the largest grouping in the European Parliament. Now they have a preference for a fairly centrist coalition. Um they 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 quite like having um, something that sort of covers both at the centre right, the centre left. Maybe if the if we do see a very meaningful shift to the right, then some of the the more right wing blocks would have to be brought into this coalition. So the ECR, for example, um, which has Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy party as a as a member, but we're not going to see the populist right grouping sort of enter into a coalition and sort of end up with um, a position in the European Commission so I think it's it is something notable that's happening as you said particularly in countries like Germany and France it's something that is worth noting um, in in terms of you know mapping out what's what may happen in their national elections um, in a couple of years time however really we're likely to see a commission after these elections that looks very similar to the commission that we have now as the parties that are part of this current coalition will still likely be the largest parties that form the next coalition as well. So we're not going to see a big shift in the true power base. We've also seen the European... um, parliament become very good at absorbing these sort of far-right populist movements as they come along and sort of slowly integrating them or isolating them into the sort of the the structure of the commission and the structure of, of the parliament so I think it is probably overdone to say that it's going to be a sort of a massive takeover of the, the European sort of structures and power bases. They will have influence if they do very well in these elections. You may see, you know, the... You know, the debates around immigration and um, the green transition have to take into account some of those more right wing views. But it doesn't mean that there is going to be this enormous shift in the way that the commission approaches anything, because broadly speaking, the same leadership are going to be in charge after this election.
2: All right. Well, I think that is all we have time for this week. We will no doubt be revisiting many of these topics throughout the year as we get closer to the elections and get the results but for now please do allow me to remind you to like and subscribe wherever you choose to get your podcasts and then all that remains is for me to thank Lizzie for joining us today and to thank you all for listening so thanks very much and speak again soon This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment, recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections, or estimates, and provide no guarantee of future results.